Am I on? There I am. Good morning, church. How are you? You look good. I know JT said that, but um, I just want to let you know you look good. I'm glad to see you here. Uh, we got a full morning. We've got uh, a good bit to cover, so we're just going to jump right in. Does that sound good? Uh, so as uh, JT said, if you don't know me, my name is Brandon, and wherever TJ Morgan is, if you do know me, my name is still Brandon. Uh, sorry, TJ Chapman. Um, uh, that's, never mind. We'll just, uh, so uh, one of the pastors here, what that means is that, uh, uh, as, as I typically say, that gives me the, the privilege and the opportunity, the honor to be able to come and to share God's word with you. That's something that I think very seriously, something that I very much delight to do in. If you haven't been with us, or if you need the reminder, we are in the book of John, a series in John. We are in John chapter 7. So I'd invite you to go ahead and start turning there if you have your, your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do. And if you don't, then you can pull out your phone or your device or whatever you're using and uh, travel over to John chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 25 here in just a couple of minutes. But before we do, I want to lay out a little bit of context um, as, as we have been doing really every week because there's, there's so much that goes along with uh, where we are in Scripture so much information, so much backstory, so much context that I don't want us to lose that. So uh, as you turn there, let me give you a, a little bit of, of context, a little bit of a recap from, uh, from last week. Jesus has traveled up to Jerusalem in the middle of the, the Feast of Booths or um, the, the, uh, the, the Festival of Booths, depending on uh, which version of Scripture you're using. And so uh, he travels up alone. He travels in private, unannounced. Uh, something really quickly about this, this festival, this feast. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, right, who wasn't a follower of Christ, who came later, but who uh, was a very diligent historian uh, for uh, the, the Israeli people, called the, the Festival of Booths the holiest and greatest festival among the Jews. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Uh, I knew that it was significant, but I didn't know that this was really considered to be one of the greatest and, and, and holiest festivals and celebrations that the Israelites uh, celebrated. And it was designed to last for seven days, so it was, it was a week-long celebration. And, and during this celebration, there was, there was a daily rite that was done every morning. Is that me? Static? We're going to keep going. I hear it. I don't know if you guys do. Um, there was a daily rite that was done each morning that I think is important that, to, for us to hear because it's going gonna, it's gonna to help us understand a little bit of what's going on in the passage that we're going to look at today. And it's going to help us a lot in the passage next Sunday uh, to understand the, the words that Jesus says. There, there is there's a, a rite that is done every day that we don't see in the text, but we have from Jewish history that we need to understand. Each morning of the festival, a great crowd would gather around, and they would, they would travel to the temple. And then the, the priests would come, and the priests would make sure that everything was in order, that they had everything that they needed. Uh, and, and then what they would do is, uh, after, after he had everything in order, he would, the priests would, would, would grab hold of this golden pitcher, and then the crowd would follow the priest to the pool of Siloam, and they would chant psalms. They would chant some of their, their more significant psalms as they, they kind of took this parade from the temple to, to the pool of Siloam. And as they approached the pool, the priests would dip the pitcher into the water. And then the, the people would recite Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, which says this, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And so after this was done, the crowd would then march back with the priest to the temple and they would enter in through the water gate to the blast of the priest's trumpet. And then the priest would then circle the altar once each day until reaching the seventh day where he would circle the altar seven times. And then he would pour the water out. And as I said, this was done every day during this festival. Now, I'm not going to go into a great deal of that because I think that if, if you were to look ahead to, to verses 37 and following, I think the words that Jesus says on the seventh day of the feast seem to line up with that really well. 
Um, but we're not in that text today, so I don't want to spoil it. What I want to do is focus on, on the, the words that we do have from Jesus with this, this interaction with the crowd, what we're about to see with, with some, some temple guards, some officials, some religious leaders. But a bit more just to lay out, just to remind you, uh, Jesus' popularity had, had grown significantly by this point in his ministry. He was very well known. Um, he was very loved and he was very hated by many. And as I said, he travels up to the festival in private because of this very reason. But we're told in verse 11, even though he hadn't been seen at the festival yet, we're told in verse 11 that the Jews were looking for him at the feast. And they were saying, where is he? And I don't believe that this was because they wanted to hear his teachings because uh, they were seeking him out to, to see what they could learn from him and, and, and glean from him and to see if he was the Messiah. I think they were seeking him out because they, they wanted to see him seized or arrested and, and potentially put to death because the vast majority of people um, very much hated the words of Christ. And so there's this tension that, that, that exists during this seven-day festival is, is what I want you to, to to, to get a picture of. Verse 12 and 13 says, in verse 7, or chapter 7, excuse me, says, there was much muttering about him among the people, about Jesus. While some said he is a good man, others said he is leading people astray. But for fear of the Jews, the religious authorities, no one spoke openly of him. So there was this it's, it's really kind of the elephant in the room scenario. Everyone's thinking about Jesus. Everyone's whispering about Jesus. No one's speaking openly about Jesus because they know the religious leaders are really trying to put a lid on this. And so if, if, if you can gather this picture, things are really kind of a buzz, all, all just circling around Jesus, this, this one man, because of the things that he has done, the, the miracles that he's performed, the things that he has taught. And then during the middle of this festival, as I said, Jesus, uh, he, he travels up and then he, he, to Jerusalem. And then he, he appears at the temple and he begins to teach. And the people realize that, that no, one, no one's ever taught like this man before. No one's ever said the types of things that this man has said. And they know, understand something, church, they know that he doesn't have any official training, right? Jesus is referred to as a rabbi, but the vast majority of Jews do not see him as a literal rabbi. He had no formal training, so they begin to question him about the things that he said. And to this, uh, he, he says um, su such a, a great thing that just sparks this whole next conversation that we see in the text, which we're about to get to. Jesus says in verse 16, he says, my teaching is not my own. It's not mine. It, it is from him who sent me. So something I want you to, to, to grasp before we get into the text, church, is that every, every detail of this passage that we're about to look at, it, it is all about how Jesus is fulfilling things from the Old Testament. And how because of that, he deserves to be believed, to be seen, to be known and believed as the Messiah. Right? The Feast of, of Passover which is, is what is, is in the background of this whole festival. The Feast of Passover is about Jesus. He's the sacrificial lamb. Right? The Feast of Booths is all about Jesus. The procession of those worshipers that travel with the priest to the pool of Siloam. That is all for the glory of Jesus. The temple where these events take place is about Jesus. It, it is... The temple is where God dwells amongst his people, but Christ is God in the flesh amongst his people. So even the temple points to Christ. The rite of, of circumcision, which is, again is, is playing in the, in the background with, with all of these festivals and observances, that's of the promised seed that is to come, which is Jesus. Observing the Sabbath, which is what Jesus is, is really in trouble for because he healed a crippled man on the Sabbath. The Jews, they remember this. But even that, it's, it's about 
the rest that Jesus brings, the, the restoration that Christ brings, his power and his glory. And then the law of Moses, which is going to be referenced, even that is about the coming Redeemer, which is, is Jesus. So I want you to see this whole entire passage is about Jesus. No surprise. I mean, it's the Gospel of John. It's, it's the account of Jesus' life. We expect it to be about Jesus. We've told you, JT and myself have told you time and time again, this, is, this Gospel is, is really one of the most Jesus-saturated Gospels that we have. It is so much about, I mean, just the, 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 the pronouncements of Christ, that he is the I am, the things that he does, his interactions with people. We have things that we see in Jesus' life and ministry that we don't have in the synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So all of this is about Jesus. And why, why shouldn't it be, right? That's, that's why we're here this morning, right? To celebrate our Christ, our Messiah, Jesus. So let's look at the text John chapter 7, verses 25 through 36. Church, is the reading of God's word. It says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this man whom they seek to kill? Is, this, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come from my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So, there, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So, so the, the, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Church, let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you right now just uh, relying wholly upon your word. I ask that you would just give me the words to speak, that you would allow me to proclaim the truth of your word with, with conviction and, and with boldness, and of course with humility. Father, hide me behind your cross. May everything I say and do in these moments uh, magnify the name of Jesus, our Savior. We thank you so much for Christ for the sacrifice that he made, for the life that he lived, the model that he gave for us to follow. We worship him today. We thank you, Lord. Again, just use me to speak the truth of your word. Father, I trust that your Holy Spirit has been working amongst the hearts and minds of each one of us to just stir up our our affections, Lord, to draw in our attention to you. Above all, Lord, be glorified in all that's said and done here today. And we trust you and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Am I the only one that hears that? All right, I don't know what it is, but it's super distracting. So if I just like, like get distracted, and that's going to be why. Because this is like right in my ear. So, the people of Jerusalem, we see in this text, they're very surprised to see that, that Jesus is there. He's teaching openly. He's not being arrested. The religious leaders aren't, aren't pressing in on him. Because understand, I, I think you know this, but the religious leaders, they hate Jesus. 
everything about him. They hate what he stands for. They hate his message. They hate the miracles that he performs. How he, they, in, in their minds, how he's breaking the Sabbath. They hate this man. Right? Not, not to mention that he, he makes these pronouncements that, that equates him to God. Right? That's blasphemy. That, that was a crime of the first degree in this world that would get you literally killed. And as we know the story, it, it literally does. But they, they hate Jesus for his message and his ministry. The crowd knows that, that the religious leaders, I, I think, were, are forming a plan. Otherwise, they wouldn't have asked. So they, they, they know that they're not about to speak about Jesus openly, that the religious leaders are forming a plan to arrest him and kill him. Um, this has been happening ever since the Passover before last, where Jesus healed a crippled man on the Sabbath. But now they, they, they don't seem to act, and the crowd is left kind of scratching their head. They're bewildered. Like, why isn't this? Why aren't they seizing him? Why aren't they? Why is he allowed to speak and teach openly in this manner? They seem confused, and they, they ask if perhaps the religious authorities had information that, that Jesus was actually the Messiah. They're asking the question, I think almost ironically, do the religious, have, they, have they come to the conclusion that Jesus really is who he says he is? Now, understand something. I don't believe for a second that these people actually believed that. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They, they most likely didn't believe that the religious leaders believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Even with all of this evidence that's, that's before them, they still don't have, they, they can't see Christ. Like, if you remember, like the, 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 the title of the, the series is to know and believe. Like we picked that intentionally out of out of the text, to know Christ and believe. That isn't just, and when we say know, that means like deep down within us, in our spirit, to know who Christ is and to believe in that Jesus. Not to just believe that he was a good moral teacher or, or fill in the blank from, from all of the, the, the different current uh, ideologies about who Christ was. Uh, we're saying to, to, to see Christ for who he is and to believe in that they had all of this evidence before them that pointed to that, but they didn't have true faith in Christ. And, and about this, really quickly, I'll share with you a quote that, that I got from um, uh, the great pastor, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, talking about unbelief, because that's what is at the core and the center of these people who see who Jesus is. Unbelief is something that is deeper than reason or instinct. Right, so even based in their reason or instinct, they see who, like, you can't understand, you can't comprehend or explain these things that Christ does. But yet they just, they refuse, they refuse to, to profess faith in Christ. The quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, complete confidence in self and one's own belief is a characteristic of unbelief. Isn't that the same thing that, that we see so often today? Right? We, we, we put all of our certainty in, in modern knowledge, modern understanding. We, we excuse things away because they just, it just can't be that. Right? And, and, and I'm not saying that we can't use science to believe and profess certain things because I think, I know that God created science. Science belongs to God. Right? But now we use science to say God doesn't exist. Do you understand the, the point that I'm making is that we fill ourselves up with all of this, this knowledge, this, this, this supposed knowledge and understanding, and it just leads to greater unbelief. And that's what's happening in, in the hearts and the minds of these people that see Jesus. And this is proven to be true because they, they really quickly dismiss the idea of the religious leaders thinking that Jesus is the Christ. The Jews of that day believed that the Messiah would arrive suddenly and from an unknown location. But yet they, they claim to know, and, and I want you to, to really see that, they claim to know that, that Jesus was born, they know he was born of, of Joseph and Mary in Nazareth, right? Only he wasn't. That, that's, that's what's 
believed by the vast majority of people. We'll get into that a little bit more here in just a second, though. Despite all this biblical revelation concerning Christ, all of the, the Old Testament texts that point to Jesus, uh, there, there were those who, who believed that the Messiah would be born of unknown lineage. Right? And that he, he would be unknown until he arrived in his triumph. I'm going to tell you that I, I think this is likely, I don't, I don't know this for sure, but I think this is likely a misunderstanding of a passage in Malachi. Right, Malachi chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, I'll, I'll read it to you. But Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 says this concerning the Messiah. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So, through my reading in preparation for this morning, I discovered that it was, it was pretty common for a vast majority of people to think that the Messiah would just show up suddenly, out of nowhere. He would be virtually unknown until he just leapt onto the scene to, to start his authority or his, his ministry in, in all authority. Right? And so these people are saying, like, we, we know who you are. We know who you're born of. We know where you came from. So you, you, you can't possibly be the Messiah. But we know with, with the patience to, to examine the facts about Jesus, we could easily discover that he was actually born in Bethlehem. Right? He, he was raised in Nazareth, but he was born in Bethlehem. We know that he fulfilled prophecy that said he was, he was born of a virgin. So Joseph wasn't his literal biological father. He came from the lineage of, of David, which is a fulfillment of prophecy. All of these things, with, with just a careful look and patience, you can see all of these things to be true, just as the Scriptures declared of the Messiah. All right, but then we, we get to verse 28. All of this is taking place that I've just given to you. In verse 28, it says, So Jesus proclaimed. He, he, he hears these things that they're saying, overhearing the, the reasoning of, of the, the crowd, these men, Jesus, it says Jesus suddenly just proclaims. And I want you to know, in the Greek, that word proclaimed, it literally means to shout. Jesus cries out in a loud voice to like, hey, everybody give me your attention. I'm going to tell you something. So Jesus cries out in a loud voice. And here's what he says. You know me. You know where I'm from but I haven't come of my own accord. Right? He who sent me is, is true. And he, here's the bombshell, right? He says, and you don't know him. I know him because I come from him and he sent me. So the, the tension that existed before he said that would have escalated exponentially in that moment. Jesus would have just kind of just lobbed a hand grenade into the crowd, uh, this truth bomb that would have just totally disrupted and upset everybody who heard it. Because I, I think here is what Jesus is, is saying in those words, and I think this is the way that they, they would, the, the crowd, the Jews would have heard it. Jesus is saying, you, you think you know me. You, you think you know my background. You think you know where I'm from. You know me to be Jesus of Nazareth. But you're wrong. I'm not of Nazareth. You, you assume I come from Galilee, so, so, so I can't be the, the, the long-awaited Messiah. But listen, you're, you're mistaken. You don't know me. You think I'm the physical son of Joseph, but I'm not. You're wrong. Your knowledge of me is wrong. And here's what I love, what, what, what Jesus does. Picking back up in 28, he says, You know me and you know where I come from, but I, I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So Jesus doesn't take it back to his physical birth. 
to say, like, hey, I was actually born in Bethlehem. I was born of a virgin. All these things, like, no, he takes it back further, doesn't he? He takes it back to John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is Jesus. In the beginning, before the world was created, before the earth was formed, Jesus was there. He takes it all the way back to to His presence with the Father in eternity past, before the world was even made. In the beginning, He was with God. And in the beginning, He was God. So understand the, the, the equation that he's making with himself, and then he's to, to, to say that he is with God, he is of God, he is God, and then to say, you don't know him. You don't know this true God. Because if you did, then, then you would recognize me. You would know me. But you don't. You don't see me, you don't know me or believe in me. So I'm saying, you don't know the God that you claim to know. Church understands them. These people are utterly blind in their unbelief. They don't see Christ for who he is. They, they profess to be the people of God. Jesus is saying, you, you don't know the God that you profess to believe in. Is it any wonder that the next verse says, verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. They, they wanted this man arrested for these words. These, the, understand, church, the, the Jews prided themselves on being the chosen people of God. Right? They were the very people of God they believed to know God through the law that was given to them through their ancestors, through Moses, the law that was given by God. But if you remember, you could turn back to John chapter 5, verse 46, and Jesus, he's already declared that the law points to him. The law points to Jesus. He said, if you believed Moses and they claimed to do so, you would believe me. For he, Moses, he's, he wrote of me. So that means that if, if they didn't recognize Jesus, and they didn't, then they didn't know the law, which they claimed to know. And if they don't know the law, then doesn't it stand to reason that they, they don't know the one who gave the law? This would have been a great offense to any Jew of that day. Right? It would be the same as if, if I stood up here and told all of you that you believe in Christ, but you, you, you claim that, but you actually don't. Right? And you're all blind, you're all lost, you're all just stuck in unbelief. It would have been the, the very same kind of emotive response. It says that at that moment, they, they wanted to seize him. They wanted him to be arrested and taken before the Sanhedrin. To be tried for the sin of blasphemy, which I've already told you was was punishable by death. It tells us that no one laid a hand on him. Church, let me ask a really simple question, but I want you to really think about this. It says that no one laid a hand on him. Why not? I mean, like, put yourself in that moment. And just think, like, why not? There's a couple of instances, I don't know if you've noticed this in Scripture, that are just weird, where it says, like, like the crowd wanted to, you know, to, to throw Jesus off a cliff, and then he just, like, passes through the middle of the crowd. How does that happen? You have this angry mob that wants to arrest you or kill you, but yet no one laid a hand on him. Is that not weird to anyone else? Like, do we just, we hear that? And we're like, ah, oh, it's Jesus. So like, of course, because the text tells us his time hadn't come. So I know it's the providential hand of God at work. It's the secret providence of God, like holding them back. But like, what literally prevented them in that moment from laying hands on him? I don't know. It doesn't really matter, but I just find it interesting. Am I the only one? You guys still here? All right. 
It says, no one laid a hand on him. The time that the Father willed for him to be arrested and crucified, it's, it's coming, but church, understand something. It isn't here yet. Just in the same way that, that Saul sought out David to kill him. He wanted to kill him, but he, he couldn't do it, right? Because God's protection of David was, was in place. Same thing's happening here. The opponents of Jesus, they want to arrest him. They want him to be put to death. They couldn't do anything against him. Not until the appointed time. But we see something else happening. We see there's some people who are present there. They're examining all of the evidence for themselves. And they're coming to the conclusion that maybe, maybe this guy, maybe he is who he says he is. Right, they, they recognize the, the signs that he performs and, and these truths that he teaches that they don't know how he knows to teach them. How does he know these things? These things that he says in, in all authority. No one has said things like this before. Maybe, maybe he is the Messiah. They, they, they ask themselves, again, I think sort of ironically, like, if he's not the Messiah, like this is, this is, this is like my, my rendition of, of the text here, so um, bear with me. Like if he's not the Messiah and there's still a Messiah to come, like is that guy going to do more miracles than this guy? I think that's, that's the way I read the text. Like look at the things he's done. Is somebody else going to come and do more than this? Is this not enough? These things that he's performed that we can't explain, we can't understand, do you think that, that the Christ who is to come is going to do more signs than this man? And it says that, that, they, that those people started to believe in Jesus as the Christ. And I think this, this tells us that, that those who truly know who Jesus is will, will truly know the Father. I say truly because... It isn't enough to simply just say that you believe in Christ. Right? So, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of leaping from where the Jews were in their time, just declaring to be the people of God, but they weren't. Now to, to the new covenant, us today, if we profess to be in Christ, are we really? It isn't enough, church, hear me, to just say, I believe in Jesus to be the Messiah. And I know that that might sound uh, a bit suspect to say it isn't enough to just declare that Jesus is the Christ. Yes, we have to do that. We have to believe that. Right? We have to know and believe that. We can't just profess it. And it can't just be something that we have up inside of our head. That's why, you know, if, if you've grown up in the church at all, you've heard about, you know, the drop from our head to our heart. Like just this this kind of comprehensive knowledge that we have, and we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not functionally our Messiah. We don't live our lives devoted to him. So it isn't enough to just simply say that you believe in Jesus as the Christ, and I'll give you some examples. Um, you have Latter-day Saints, Mormons, you have Jehovah's Witness. These are people who profess faith in Christ. They are not in Christ. I don't say that pridefully or, or begrudgingly towards them, they, they are not of Christ. They, they are lost in sin. They are blind in unbelief. And they profess faith in Christ because they believe in, in a Jesus different from the Jesus we see in the Scriptures. And because of that, they, they don't know the Father. So do you see the, the connection, the correlation from the, the Jews in their day to, to us today? Picking up in verse 32, it says the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. They, they're starting to hear the people say that they believe in Jesus to be the Christ. And they want to put a stop to it. The chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So the religious leaders, 
They seem to have made it clear they don't want any people talking about Jesus, and it's starting to happen. They certainly don't want people to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That's starting to happen. So when word gets back to the Pharisees that people were actually believing that Jesus was the Christ, they've got to put a lid on it. They've got to spring into action and put a stop to this. So it tells us that the Pharisees join with the chief priests in attempting to have him arrested. Now, it's, it's worth knowing in, in this part of, of the text that the, the, the chief priests, who were almost all Sadducees, right? And if you don't know what that is, it's just that, that was um, an aristocratic group that existed that, that held a great deal of power over Israel, um, uh, over the Jews in Israel. And so you had, you had the Sadducees, who, who primarily made up the chief priests, and then you had the Pharisees, and they're coming together. And the Pharisees, if, if, if you don't know, they were just this really influential, super religiously pious group, right? Really kind of holier than thou. Jesus even says, no one does righteousness better than the Pharisees. Um, they joined together in seeking to arrest Jesus. And this is significant because these two these two crowds, these two groups of people, they, they don't typically get along very well with each other. They don't like each other. But however, when, when it came to Jesus, they, they were undoubtedly quick to work together in this matter as they sent officials, they sent officers to go and arrest him. And these officers were temple guards. All right, the text, uh, depending on your translation, most likely, likely doesn't say that, but they were temple guards of the tribe of Levi. And they were controlled by the Sanhedrin, which is really the, the supreme council over all of Israel. They made all of the decisions concerning public law and application of those things. And this council was made up of not trying to overwhelm you with information, but they, it was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees and the high priests. And these, these temple guards, these officers, they could be used at the discretion of this high court at any time for any matter that they wanted, so long as it, it didn't pertain to the Roman prefect, right? If, if, if the Roman officials didn't really care, like if this is just some kind of like Jewish religious squabble, we don't really care just so long as it doesn't disrupt the public. You guys handle it. Right? And we even see that in, in the arrest and the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. So that's what's at play here. The, the religious leaders of the day, they send the, the temple guards, the officers to go and arrest Jesus. So let's go back to verse 33. Presumably the, the officers arrive. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks. And if you were to go on to read the text, Jesus does not get arrested. The temple guards do not arrest him. Why? Other than to tell you that his time had not come, I don't know why. Jesus just says, I'm going to be with you a little bit longer. And the, 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 the temple guards are like, oh, okay. And he tells them that where he's going, they cannot come. At this appointed time, he'll, he, he will return to the Father who sent him. All right, Jesus knows that, that he is going to the cross. He knows that his death is imminent. But he also knows that death is not the end. Amen? Church, if you don't know, our Savior is not dead. He died for our sin, praise God, but he's not dead. Jesus knew that death was not the end. He knew that he would return to the glory that he had with the Father before the world ever existed. 
He won't be extinguished by his death. He knows this. We need to know this. Instead, church, he will be declared as the Most High, the Son of God, the one who is seated at the right hand of God in all authority, who puts his enemy under his feet as a footstool, that he will exist in the triumph of his resurrection. He knows all of this. And he says that, that essentially that is where he's going. And that this is a place where the Jews cannot come. The crowd can't come. The religious leaders can't come. Even, even the disciples who follow Jesus in belief, they can't come. They cannot join him there until their life on earth is done. And after Jesus departs, Here's, here's really the, the, the crux of the whole thing. Here's, here's the bombshell of the whole thing that these people don't understand. When Jesus departs, listen, no other Messiah will appear. No other Savior will be sent. No other Redeemer will come. But, but hear me, they're going to look for one. They're going to be watching and waiting. Church, they're still waiting for the Messiah and they wait in vain. They watch in vain. The Messiah has come. The Redeemer has come. Pastor John MacArthur put it, put it this way regarding this. He says that, it, that Jesus is essentially saying, you will, you will seek me and you will not find me. Which says that, that sinners will seek him and not be able to find him in life or death. Part of what hell is, is suffering for sin. Hell is resentment. Hell is unrelieved bitterness under the destructive hand of God. Hell is eternal regret without remedy. Everlasting remorse without hope. That's why there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth in the tormenting darkness. You will seek me. What a horrible reality. But you will not find me. Hell is not where Christ is forgotten. Hell is where Christ is unavailable. Church, do you, do you feel the weight of those words? I'm not trying to make anyone here doubt or, or fear the truth of their salvation. But do you feel the weightiness of this? This, this thing that I'll confess to you that sometimes I just, I just take for granted and I forget about. This this miracle that has taken place in my own life and how I might go a day or two without really reflecting upon that or, or living that out with the people that are around me. I get so caught up in the hustle and the bustle of life that I forget all of that, that this is what weighs in the balance. But once again, Jesus is, is misunderstood by, the, by his hearers. They ask where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? Where, where could he possibly go that, that we wouldn't be able to find him? It's as if, if they're asking really in a scoffing manner, what far off part of the world will he go and hide to that we can't find him? I don't know that, but that's, I think that's the feeling we get from the text. They assume that he, he will go to the dispersion. That's the, uh, in, in the Greek, we, it's called the, the diaspora. It's the scattering out of the Jews that took place during exile. Right? Where they were scattered out abroad from the kingdom of Israel. And these were considered heathen countries made up of people who were seen as more easily impressionable than the Jews. So they miss the, the critically important meaning of, of, of Jesus' words about, I'm going to go somewhere and you can't come. They miss the meaning of it. They claim, are you just going to go out to the dispersion where maybe your, your, your words will take root a little bit better, right? Because the way that we see the, the heathens, the pagans out there, and they just miss it. And, and, and Jesus, again, doesn't, he doesn't appear to correct their thinking at all. So to kind of 
wrap this up to see what, what do we do with this, with this text? Because right? I, I, I most likely haven't said anything too surprising or too alarming to you this morning. But what, what do we do with this? Right? If we're sitting here and we, we, we profess faith in Christ, understand here's, here's the situation that, that we have. And this is really going to carry on into next week's sermon. The, the crowd has been told that they don't know God. The Pharisees have been told that they're powerless to do anything in their plans to arrest Jesus until the appointed time comes. The Feast of Booths, which is happening, that brought Jesus to Jerusalem, it's, it's almost over. Right? And the seventh day is the biggest, grandest day, and Jesus is going to say some really big and grand things. He's surrounded by people that despise him and want to arrest him. And this is all driven out of their complete unbelief and denial of Jesus as the Christ. And as I said, un- unbelief leads to ignorance of God. We just, it's not an insult, just ignorance, a lack of knowledge of God. And all, church, understand all, all of us will have to give an account to God. We will all be subject to God's judgment for our sins and for our, our genuine profession in Christ on the day of judgment. And so, if you're here this morning, a couple of things, and, 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 and you don't know Christ, I want to speak directly to you. Understand something. I can't say this with, with enough emphasis. If, if you do not have Christ as your Lord and Savior, you believe that to your core and you live out like that you, the old person is put to death. You seek to, to mortify your sins daily because you want to be more like Christ. Right? That, that is the, the transformation that must take place in our hearts, in our lives. And we cannot make that transformation happen. But hear me, understand, you are, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are an enemy of God. You are destined to separation in hell from God. But there is great news that Christ came to be a sacrifice, to, be, to, to make a propitiation, to make a payment for our sin, to erase our guilt. So I plead with you this morning, place your faith in him. Confess that you are in sin and Jesus will save you. And if you're here this morning and, and you profess faith in Christ. But you struggle with unbelief towards God, then I want you to think carefully about where you stand in relationship with the Lord today. Again, I'm not, I'm not trying to sway anyone one direction or the other, but maybe you profess faith in Christ, but your life doesn't reflect it at all. Then, then maybe you should pause and consider where you stand in relation to the Father. Because listen, and and I'm not saying I know this because I don't. I don't know the condition of anyone's heart in this room except for my own. Maybe you think that you know the Father, but you actually don't. So just consider this morning, does my life reflect that of Christ? Am I, am I seeking to put to death my sin every day? Am I seeking to, to, to put that old man, that old woman to death and to walk in newness of life, to be, uh, to, for, my, for my mind and my spirit to be renewed by the word of God, to live that out before others? Because church, we're about to take communion here in just a moment. And that is a declaration that you do in fact believe that. And if, if you don't and you come and you partake of it, then you're playing a dangerous game. So just consider where you stand in relationship to God. And again, I just want to stress, I'm not trying to sway anyone. I'm not trying to scare you. I just want us to think. I just want us to ponder upon these words because there were people who thought they were the people of God and Jesus says, you're not. And I don't for a second want that to be true about any one of us. And just to be clear, I don't think that's true of any of us. But as I already stated, I don't know. Only God knows. Jesus said, where I am, 
you will never be. There isn't a more serious warning in all of Scripture. You will die in your sins unless you believe this. So seek the Lord while he may be found. So just think about these as I close. I'm going to pray, and then I'll, I'll, uh, I guess we'll do, we'll do communion first. Um, JT will come up, and, and he's going to share with you um, some words about communion. And then we'll sing, and I'm going to be over here to the side, probably with some others. And if you need to talk or pray, then come and do so. But, but, but think about these things as we prepare for that. These, these words of Christ... How seriously do you take them? Will you allow them to to penetrate your heart and your mind and your spirit daily? Do Do they shape the person that you are? Are there things in your life that that suggest you don't take these words very seriously? Do the choices that you make in your life reflect that of Christ? And church, if if you can't answer those questions with confidence, then this is the time to respond. So I'm going to pray, and then JT will come up, but I, I want you to ponder these things, church, and then respond accordingly. So let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you again. We're grateful for your grace. We are grateful for your steadfast love and your patience with us as sinful human beings. We are grateful that you no longer see us when we are in Christ as your enemy. Father, help us to walk that out in our lives each and every day to seek to to reflect the righteousness of our Savior, to never ever leave it to doubt or question that we might be those who profess faith in Him but actually do not know Him. As the text in John tells us, Jesus said people saw Him, they knew Him, but they didn't believe in Him. May those words never be true of us. So, Just again, Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit come and work amongst us. Prepare our our hearts and our minds to just respond to you. And Lord, we we offer up our praise and thanksgiving to you now um, in the observance of communion and singing of songs and prayer. It's all for you, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.